A peacekeeping mission is deployed in a country to build peace. And to build peace, you have to strengthen those who ensure that the peace is sustainable. Those are the people of Congo, their institution, their government. That's the first thing that we have to keep in mind. Les grands défis. With regard to the transition, the great challenge is the lack of preparedness of the government and of the entire population regarding the departure of MONUSCO from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Democratic du Congo. Welcome to this Peace Lab podcast on transitions from peacekeeping to peacebuilding. Based on interviews with experts and senior policymakers from the UN, the EU, the World Bank, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Germany, this podcast is about key challenges and lessons learned on what happens when a peacekeeping mission withdraws from a country and is replaced by peacebuilding efforts, the process that is referred to as a transition from a peacekeeping mission to peacebuilding. The podcast is produced by me, Marie Wagner, and Sarah Brockmeier from the Global Public Policy Institute, GPPI, in Berlin, in cooperation with the German Federal Foreign Office, as contribution to the World Bank's Virtual Fragility Forum 2020. It is part of the Peace Lab project, which we run at GPPI to foster debate on conflict prevention, stabilization and peacebuilding, and which is supported by the German Federal Foreign Office. One key conclusion of our first episode was that planning and preparing for transitions cannot start early enough. The experts we spoke to agreed on the following points. National ownership and leadership are essential for a successful transition. The different actors involved need to share a common vision and joint strategies and coordination amongst them is indispensable. This requires joint analysis and planning, not only, but in particular for adequate financing. We also learned that transitions have become a more pressing issue in recent years, as previous transitions of the peacekeeping missions in Côte d'Ivoire, Liberia and Haiti closely followed one another, and that several of the upcoming transitions will be even more complex. If you have not listened to that episode yet, we invite you to do so before you listen to this one. In this episode, we will discuss a country case to better understand what the challenges of a transition are in a concrete example. To do so, we will turn to a transition that will happen at some point in the future. The transition of MONUSCO, the United Nations Organization Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. To discuss the challenges that a transition from MONUSCO will entail, we spoke to the General Director of the DRC's Social Fund, Rufin Boelongo, the women's rights activist, Passimou Balama, to the Special Representative of the Secretary-General of MONUSCO, Leila Zirugi, the EU Ambassador to the DRC, Jean-Marc Chatinier, and to the Senior Operations Officer of the World Bank Social Protection and Jobs Africa team, Paul Bans. They shared their insights on the current situation in the DRC, MONUSCO, and the challenges that a transition of the peacekeeping mission in the DRC will likely come with. This episode consists of four parts. First, we will provide you with a brief overview on the history of MONUSCO in the DRC and its main tasks. Second, you will hear why it is so important to already start talking about a transition in this context and about the main challenges for a drawdown of the mission and its aftermath. Third, the experts will explain the importance of national ownership in a transition process and how this is being addressed in the DRC. 
And last, building on the first episode, we will focus on the role of international actors, including the UN, the World Bank and the European Union, in supporting the transition. In doing so, we will point out some of the challenges that may arise in terms of coordination, joint planning and the status of shared strategies, and financing. Two quick notes before we begin. First, we want to point out that this episode is focused on the role of the DRC government, the UN, the World Bank and the EU, leaving aside a myriad of other organizations, local actors and donors that need consideration for a more comprehensive picture of the transition process. This episode sets out to spark more debate on this issue. The second point that is important to note, we conducted most of the interviews for this podcast in June 2020. More recent developments in the fast-changing environment in the country after June 2020 could therefore not be reflected in the interviews. With that said, let's turn to the overview of developments in the DRC and the peacekeeping mission deployed there. To better understand why MONUSCO was deployed in the DRC in the first place, we will first look at the country's recent history. So bear with me for a few minutes to hear about some important political events as background for the rest of the episode. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, a former Belgian colony, gained independence in 1960. The country has seen recurring conflicts and violence. It is the second largest country in Africa and today it has almost 90 million inhabitants. In 1965, the former army chief Joseph Mobutu seized power. He maintained a one-party political rule until 1990. He renamed the country Zaire in 1971 and it would keep this name until the end of his military dictatorship in 1997. In the beginning of the 1990s, Mobutu's power began to fade due to, among others, a deterioration of the economic situation, corruption and increasing criticism of human rights practices. And conflicts in neighboring countries spilled over. The Rwandan genocide in 1994 led to a destabilization in the DRC's eastern regions. Starting in 1996, Tutsi rebels took over large territories in the east and, one year later, a Congolese rebel coalition captured the capital Kinshasa. This period is referred to as the First Congo War. Laurent Désiré Kabila became president in 1997. However, soon after, a variety of other rebel groups backed by neighboring states started to fight against the Kabila government. The rebel forces took the east of the country. Some of them are still active today. In the following decade, a bloody war between more than two dozens of rebel groups involving five countries broke out. The Second Congo War, or Great War of Africa. Two years later, in November 1999, the UN Security Council issued a resolution which led to the peacekeeping mission MONUC, renamed to MONUSCO in 2010. In 2001, President Laurent Kabila was assassinated and his son, Joseph Kabila, took office. In 2006, the country's first multi-party election in more than 40 years took place. Joseph Kabila was elected and then re-elected in 2011, but internationally, concerns were raised about the transparency of the election. Eight years later, in what many have seen as an important turning point in the country, Félix Tshisekedi was elected president in January 2019. He is the son of a historic opposition leader and this transition of power, after the election had been postponed several times, was peaceful and is widely interpreted as a success. 
In the meantime, the United Nations Organization Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo became one of the UN's biggest and most complex peacekeeping missions. Initially, in 1999, it had a mandate of only three months. However, multiple resolutions, extensions and renewals of the mandate would follow. The initial 500 deployed military observers from 1999 turned into a mission with at times over 20,000 staff. As the outbreaks of violence did not cease with the official end of the Second Congo War in 2003, the UN Security Council extended the mission's mandate and continued to add new tasks for the mission to complete. The initial observation mandate was adapted to include the use of force to protect civilians where necessary. In 2010, MONUC was renamed MONUSCO, adding the word stabilization, which emphasized a new stage of development in the DRC and reflected the even more complex mandate, including countless stabilization and peace consolidation tasks. Today, UN Security Council Resolution 2502 provides MONUSCO's current mandate. It was adopted on December 19, 2019 and is valid until December 20, 2020. The latest strategic priorities of the mission are first, the protection of civilians, second, supporting the stabilization and strengthening of the state and its institutions, and third, the support for key government and security reforms. To better understand what this entails, we spoke to Leila Zirugi, the Special Representative of the UN Secretary General, or SRSG, leading MONUSCO. She outlined what she sees as key tasks of the mission, including, most recently, the Security Council's expectations regarding the preparation of the mission's drawdown. What are the mission goals and how we can achieve results and where are the challenges? Our mandate is not always very well understood, even by member states that decided to give us this mandate. That the Security Council is asking us as a first priority to protect civilians. This year, because we are in a drawdown process, then the Security Council also asked us as a second priority to engage in a strategic dialogue with the government on progress in political reform and security, and of course, to prepare for the drawdown that will be sustainable and also durable. Of course, inside when you read, you will see that uh, we speak about stabilization, we speak about monitoring of human rights, supporting government institution, but also the FRDC, the PNC, you will see that we have also a mandate to fight against impunity. So all these elements seems when you read the resolution that these are something different from protecting civilians. In Ria, and people think sometimes the protection of civilian is for the mission to rage a war, to finish the enemy, to end the conflict. The FARDC that Leila Zirugi mentioned is the abbreviation of the Congolese Armed Forces. The PNC are the Congolese National Police. The mission's first strategic goal, the protection of civilians, is more complex than sometimes understood, Leila Zirugi further explained. Instead of being a narrow approach, a lot of the tasks that Mondusco is pursuing are, in her view, in fact, directly related to it. Sometimes people don't understand that when we speak about protection of civilians, and if you speak to a Congolese in the field, they think 
that it's only military option. But we can see that if it's only military option, it will never end up because you finish one group, the other one will end up because they feel they are not protection or spoiler and opportunistic to manipulate and play the game to continue to prey on the population and nobody can stop that because it will restart again. Protecting civilians, it's neutralizing armed groups, it's addressing the threats that could be within the population or from outside, is building the, the capacity of the provincial authority to reconcile community, create and support a dialogue that will address the root causes of the conflict. It's accompanying the restoration of state authority. It's building the police and justice and professionalizing these institutions. Protection of civilian needs, first of all, a very strong interaction between our civilian part and our military. Protection of civilian needs sustainability need to identify the root causes, need to work and use the core function of the state, deploy justice, deploy police, demilitarize some area, reconciliate people. We need to help the government to build the stability across border with the neighbors. So all these work is in reality feeding the protection of civilians. So for me, it's very important to keep in mind engaging civil society working on human rights uh, monitoring, supporting the core function of the state to held accountable fighting impunity, at the same time supporting the uh, military operation, maintaining law and order through police, not through military, making sure that the police have the non-level arms that allow them to deliver on law and order without firing with live ammunition as it happened several times because we know that they don't have this capacity. According to Leila Zirugi then, all these tasks of the mission, from protecting civilians, restoring state authority, including by strengthening the military and the police and the justice system, engaging civil society, improving human rights, are deeply interconnected and important. These tasks have been part of the mission's mandates for many years, some of them for almost 20 years now. Despite this long period, the challenges still remain significant, especially in the east of the country. This leads some Congolese and international experts to express frustration at the lack of progress in this country. We talked to Rufin Bouilongo, the Director General of the DRC Social Fund since 2006. This public institution, which is mainly funding development efforts, is financed, among others, by the Congolese government and the World Bank. Ruffin Bouilongo notes that while, in general, the country seems to be at a turning point in its history, the continued insecurity in the east of the country endangers the progress made towards peace. Je pense que tout observateur avisé I think that any informed observer can easily understand that the DRC is experiencing a decisive turning point in its history after the political changes we experienced a year ago. I think that the authorities are working to try to establish a framework that is needed, in particular, to finally start working for the development of the country. You've seen all these problems related to the establishment of the rule of law, but at least there's political will so that the country can truly put itself on a trajectory of development. The necessary components are there, but unfortunately, the political and security situation, especially in the east of the country, mean that at times we lose hope of seeing all these efforts succeed. 
and particularly in the East, although MONUSCO is already 20 years old, there is still no peace. In the East, the weapons have not been silenced. People are dying almost every day. What's happening there is like a thorn in the side of the government. It seems difficult to really move towards development with this problem that is overwhelming us in the east of the DRC. Rufan Boilongo expresses the concerns of many Congolese. Why is there still no lasting peace in the country? Given MONUSCO's long presence in the country and, in the eyes of many Congolese, its big budget, a question, perhaps somewhat unfairly, arising is, what really has the mission achieved? The political and humanitarian developments in the past years seem to point towards progress that does not live up to the expectations, but also towards some hope. In the last few years, the humanitarian situation in the DRC deteriorated. Today, DRC is one of the countries most affected by displacement worldwide. In June 2020, nearly 16 million people suffer from severe food shortages, and more than 4 million children under 5 are malnourished. The country has 5 million internally displaced people, and while almost a million refugees fled to neighboring countries, DRC also hosts over half a million refugees from Rwanda, the Central African Republic, South Sudan, and Burundi. The country has also been severely affected by the Ebola virus, currently still fighting its 11th Ebola outbreak. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic worsens the situation even further, as we discuss later on. However, international actors have been cautiously hopeful since the election of Felix Tshisekedi on the basis of promises for improving the country's security situation, eliminating corruption and improving the healthcare system. Promises he still has to deliver on. Before we discuss why we need to start the conversation about a transition of the peacekeeping mission in the DRC now, let's briefly summarize what we heard so far. MONUSCO has a long history in the DRC, having been there in one form or another since 1999. Key tasks of the mission include the protection of civilians, strengthening state authorities and supporting government reforms. The head of MONUSCO, Leila Zirugi, explained that the mission's first strategic goal, the protection of civilians, is not just about military operations. In a way, almost all of the other mission's tasks, including, for example, strengthening state authorities, the justice system and human rights, relate back to ensuring security and livelihoods for civilians. Also, we learned that there is frustration with the lack of progress towards peace in the country, in particular in the East, among many Congolese, asking why the mission has not achieved more. Yet, despite a consistently challenging humanitarian and security situation, there has been some hope since the last national elections in 2019. This brings us to our next part and the question, why do we need to have the conversation about the planning for a transition of the peacekeeping mission and what would be the main challenges in such a transition? We now know about developments in the DRC and MONUSCO's key tasks. While the mission has been deployed in the country for over 20 years, the mission will ultimately draw down. As we heard in the first episode of this podcast, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has made transitions a priority throughout the UN system, not least because of pressure from Security Council members. This also means that current missions have to engage much earlier in transition planning processes in close coordination with national governments. Talk about MONUSCO's transition is not new. 
In 2014, the UN Security Council first requested the mission to develop an exit strategy. Since then, the mission initiated the closure of several offices. In 2017, five bases in North Kivu province, and in June 2019, eight offices mainly in the west and the south of the country were closed. Since 2015, the number of uniformed personnel in MONUSCO has decreased by almost a quarter. According to the most recent figures by the Department of Peacekeeping Operations from June 2020, MONUSCO now employs a total of 15,159 uniformed personnel, including 13,579 troops and 884 formed police units. 2,311 civilian staff members worked for the mission. SRSG Zerugi explained the most recent troop withdrawals and why such gradual drawdown is, in her view, the only responsible way of organizing a transition. Last year, for example, after the election, we closed seven offices and one site. Seven offices mean seven provinces. We are not deployed in all over 26 provinces. We are in six provinces. Maybe if the situation improves, we can be in four provinces and then in two, and then maybe in one, or after two, we close. So that's how I see the drawdown. When we close these eight offices, we were aware that we will not return to this, because it would be a disaster that you close, and then they call you back, and you have to go and open again. When we speak about drawdown, it must be responsible, it must be sustainable, it must be durable to allow for the mission to turn the page and to leave as a success story. We invested in this country for 20 years. We managed to help the Congo to stay within its border inherited from the Independence Day. The current debate about MONUSCO's transition started some months after the presidential elections in December 2018. In March 2019, two months after the presidential elections, the Security Council called for an independent strategic review of MONUSCO to develop a phased, progressive and comprehensive exit strategy. The review, conducted by independent experts, was published in September of the same year. It acknowledged controversies about the elections in January 2019 and described the governing coalition as potentially fragile. It also concluded that the security and protection crisis in conflict-affected provinces continues. The independent review also pointed out, however, that the elections, quote, marked the first peaceful transfer of power to an opposition party, end of quote. They called on the international community to further support the DRC on its way to sustainable peace. On the basis of this independent strategic review, in December 2019, the Security Council mandated the dialogue between the government of the DRC and MONUSCO to identify a long-term strategy to be presented to the Council in October 2020, which would propose benchmarks for the eventual transfer of MONUSCO's tasks to Congolese authorities and the UN country team, while further reducing the mission's presence. SRSG Zirugi explained. When we speak about the dialogue with the government, here also, as you know, for several times, the Security Council announced that the mission had to start a drawdown and to leave 
after every election, you have always this engagement that the Security Council asks us to engage with the government or to prepare for a drawdown. And every time we end up with a major crisis, that Security Council will start even building up again. So for this time, the Security Council decide first to have an independent expert to have the evaluation. And then they decided the government was not ready during this period because we don't have a government for nine months. So that's why the Security Council last year decided that we conduct a strategy dialogue with the government to prepare for the drawdown through progress in political reform, security, supporting the government in building its core function. Uh, We ourselves engaged with the Security Council to explain if we would like to have a drawdown that is sustainable and durable, uh, then we need to ensure that this drawdown will be done smoothly. With these developments in mind, what would be the challenges for a transition of MONUSCO? In the first episode, we have learned about common problems with transitions from peacekeeping missions to peacebuilding efforts. This includes withdrawals that happen too early, that are budget-driven, that do not respect current circumstances and recent changes in the country because of a lack of flexibility, or the lack of common planning or strategy. The strategic review explicitly mentions the risk of these challenges for MONUSCO. One question we put to our experts, therefore, was what responsibilities are currently in MONUSCO's hands, which would have to be handed over after a drawdown? While there are myriad challenges, the experts we talked to highlighted some of the most pressing aspects. First, ensuring the protection of civilians despite the ongoing instability of the security situation. Second, improving justice systems and avoiding amnesties. And third, addressing development challenges that come with the transition. Let's first look at the security situation. The EU ambassador to the DRC, Jean-Marc Chatenier, emphasized the risk that the drawdown of the mission could lead to a security vacuum. For me, the biggest challenge will be about making sure that the space left with the departure of MONUSCO does not lead to a security vacuum, which could be taken advantage of by non-state armed actors. After 20 years of presence, and for, for the better and for the worse, MONUSCO is part of the Congolese security landscape. We must be sure that the Congolese security forces are ready to take over from MONUSCO. The EU will keep supporting these efforts through its programs supporting army, police and justice. And to bring them closer to the population, of course, and make them more accountable and, and professional. SRSC Zerugi also highlighted that for a transition to be successful, the government will need to strengthen and professionalize its security forces, both the army and the police force, in order to address the security risks in the country. Many of our functions will not be handed over to country team or handed over to partner. It's core function of a state. So you will hand over this to the government. But to hand over this, you need to ensure that you have the capacity on the ground, you have a minimum of professionalization of the army, ensure the major challenge that we have in the East when we speak about the FRDC, for example, and even the PNC. We also talked to the pro-democracy and women's rights activist Pessim Balama, who is the founder and managing director of Aid Profen. The Congolese NGO promotes women's rights in the eastern regions of the DRC. 
Pasimubalama described that, from a civil society perspective, the government doesn't seem to be well prepared to ensure the security of the population yet. The great challenge with regard to the transition is the lack of preparedness of the government and the entire population regarding the departure of MONUSCO. We believe that the challenges are still enormous and that there's a lack of preparation. At the same time, there are still many problems in terms of insecurity in the country, given the presence and activities of several armed rebel groups. Currently, the Democratic Republic of the Congo has more than 100 armed groups, both national and foreign, that are unfortunately responsible for many human rights violations. We know that many people sometimes think that MONUSCO is doing absolutely nothing. But on the other hand, we wonder, if the United Nations mission leaves the Congo, how will the Congolese government deal with this situation? This is a very important question which many Congolese think about and for which, unfortunately, we do not have an answer. On this question of security and protection of civilians in particular, SRSG Zirugi pointed to the key comparative advantages of peacekeeping missions over other UN actors or international donors. They can provide logistical support using their military assets, they have political leverage vis-à-vis -vis the government and access to local authorities that no other international actor can bring to the table because of their mandate by the UN Security Council. A mission is deployed in a country that goes through a crisis, it's because it's needed. It's because the Security Council know that without this capacity on the ground, it will never happen. They cannot just ask a humanitarian actor or bilateral actor to fix the problem without having this capacity with logistical support, with leverage, because you have access at the highest level. You can speak to the president, you can speak to the minister, you can also use the leverage of the Security Council to push for reform to happen, to be implemented, etc. You have the access at local level to the local authorities to bring their knowledge, their uh, request and their ask to the national authority that sometimes are overwhelmed with something else. When we speak about some area in the East, there is a regional dimension that needs also to be addressed, helping the government that shows this interest in building the stability and good relationship with the neighboring country. So we will be the one that will support the government to build this relationship and to work on the root causes. Also, the interference that come from Ahmed's side, armed groups that are uh, from other countries. Aside from the security situation, though of course related, the experts we interviewed highlighted the issue of strengthening state authorities, including justice institutions. Leila Zirugi again from MONUSCO's point of view. While we are working on the conflict, we also provide the space for others to work on other issues like building the justice system with us, giving this legitimacy, the leverage, the support that we can bring very quickly. And when we speak about the core function of the state, it's to speak about strengthening the other tools that will solve conflict. When you have conflict, you need justice, 
you need local authorities that are legitimate and able to take care of the problems. You need reconciliation between communities. All these things need to be worked with the government. We were, of course, working on that, but it needs really to be structured and finalized to ensure that when we live in an area, the FRDC on their own will not prey on the population. You have justice that will take over if there is anything wrong that is happening. We saw, for example, all the support that we provided to the military justice for the last 10 years is bearing fruit because we see the military justice sentencing both military, sometimes very high-ranking military, and armed groups. The thing that we would like to achieve, and hopefully we will get the government on board, is to end this use of amnesty. It's to really focus this program inside the community. And then you work on the reconciliation, and then you turn the page of the conflict. And then the spoiler, if they continue to be a spoiler, they will find justice in front of them. They will be arrested, they will be tried, and the exemplarity of justice will prohibit others from doing the same. Next to challenges related to security and the capacities of state authorities, such as the justice system, the experts highlighted the risk of a funding gap for the DRC if the mission leaves, including for development and peacebuilding efforts. This was also one of the lessons learned that transitions expert Daniel Forty had highlighted in the first part of the podcast. The withdrawal of a mission has often led to a sharp decline of peacebuilding and development funding at large because of the decreased international attention that comes with a withdrawal. EU Ambassador Jean-Marc Chatigny pointed out that, in fact, the DRC is already poorly funded compared to the development aid received by other countries in the region. Passimou Balama explained that less development funding could further aggravate the situation for poor Congolese. In terms of insecurity, there are still all these problems concerning the governance system in the Congo, and the population continues to live in extreme poverty. Many people live on incredibly little, on one dollar or less a day. If we want to consolidate peace, we have to make sure that good governance can prevail. But when a population is living in poverty, people are very much at risk of falling for criminal activities. In the DRC, there are enormous challenges due to the unequal distribution of resources. The country is very rich in natural resources, for example gold or diamonds. You can find almost all the minerals in the world in the Congo. But unfortunately, even in areas with mineral resources, the population lives in extreme poverty. And for me, the risk of this transition is to leave the population behind. Passimou Balama further underlined that some groups in the DRC are more at risk than others. More specifically, special attention needs to be paid to the youth and to women, she argued. When it comes to groups that are discriminated against or that need to be given special attention, I'm thinking in particular of young people and women. Unfortunately, there are always more women and young people, for example, among displaced persons. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, young people make up more than 70% of the population. And unfortunately, many of these young people find themselves unemployed. Even those with a university degree cannot find work. Unfortunately, it is very easy for these young people to join the armed groups. 
I work a lot with women and children who are victims of armed conflict. We believe that the future of this country lies in the hands of women and young people. Many women are victims of armed conflicts worldwide. They are victims of sexual and gender-based violence and other forms of discrimination. And unfortunately, if we can't pay special attention to women, then the well-being of the whole society is pushed aside, and victims of sexual violence are ultimately victimized. So, if we speak about a transition from peacekeeping to peacebuilding in the Congo, we have heard that for a transition to succeed, key tasks on security and the protection of civilians, the justice system and development, among other challenges, will need to be addressed primarily by the DRC government and peacebuilding partners. These are complex challenges, and they have been multiplied by COVID-19 over the last few months. Between June and July 2020, violence levels in DRC have increased. The UN and Human Rights Watch reported an increase in human rights violations using state emergency measures on COVID-19 as a pretext. Protests by opposition groups over the legitimacy of the 2019 election have risen, leading to increased violence by state security forces. In addition, in June and July 2020, the UN reports that attacks by rebel groups in the eastern provinces of Ituri, North and South Kivu have increased. We asked Rufin Boilongo whether the pandemic has had an impact on the development and peacebuilding efforts in the country. Of course it has an impact. Because beyond the direct effect on the health of the affected people, the protection mechanism that has been put in place, including containment, restriction of movement, and all of that has definitely an impact on the economy. There's practically an economic downturn and, as a result, income problems occur. Similarly, according to Leila Zirugi, the pandemic risks to set the DRC back in terms of development. She acknowledged the hard work of the government to address the danger coming from the pandemic, but the economic consequences threaten to be dire. You need development that should allow everyone to enjoy a minimum of prosperity that will not be interested in fighting. We thought that we will be able to finalize it already now, but COVID invite itself to the world and to Congo. They are working very hard to try to address this issue. The economic consequences will be terrible. And also, of course, the situation that deteriorated in the East. Now, so we decided, for example, that we will start by preparing ourselves, by working with our partners, the World Bank, the Peace Building Fund, the other donors, the UN country team, to assess their ability to support what we would like to achieve, their engagement on that. We hope that COVID will not destroy all these things. We hope that we will have the support of the fifth committee to put in place and to implement these processes. Of course, if we are not supported, we will just leave these provinces and let this to other partners to deal with, which would be sad if we cannot do it. These recent developments, then, mean that an already challenging context for a transition of MONUSCO has become even more difficult. To summarize what we heard so far. First, after more than 20 years of UN presence in the country, MONUSCO will need to plan for its drawdown and has a clear mandate to put forward a strategy for a transition developed together with the government of the DRC. 
In recent years, the mission already withdrew from some parts of the country. Second, we heard about the risks when a mission withdraws and the challenges that the transition entails. Currently, the experts we interviewed question the DRC government's ability to take over MONUSCO's work on protecting civilians and strengthening justice mechanisms. They see a risk that existing development challenges will increase when the mission withdraws. Third, the economic, humanitarian and security situation in the DRC has significantly worsened in the past few months, also related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Taken together, these three points demonstrate how difficult planning and preparing for a transition will be in the DRC in the coming years. They also underline how important flexibility, strengthening the ownership of the government, as well as the local population, will be. How is the principle of national ownership being implemented in the DRC and why is this important? Before we talk about the three challenges identified and discussed in the first episode in more detail, we will take a moment to discuss national ownership in greater depth, given that the interviewed experts in both episodes agree that national ownership of the transition process is vital for success. As a pro-democracy and women's rights activist, Pasimu Balama explained what taking national ownership means in the context of the DRC. According to her, it includes that every individual Congolese should feel their ownership of what happens in the country, including the peace processes and other challenges. In other words, both national government and civil society must be involved in the transition planning. Selon moi, c'est le fait que in my opinion, every Congolese should feel concerned by everything that's happening in the Congo and take ownership of the struggle for peace consolidation. The fact that the international community says it is concerned by everything that is happening in the Congo is a good thing. But as long as the Congolese population is not taking charge of making peace sustainable, then this transition will fail due to the lack of national ownership. By national ownership, I mean the involvement not only of the Congolese government, which is taking ownership of this transition and the peace process, but I also mean the Congolese population itself. Their contribution is crucial to achieve sustainable peace. I think there are certain common analyses being done, but those analyses should include the point of view of civil society. Remember that all international NGOs, from one moment to the next, can go back to their countries. But I think it is the Congolese national civil society that should be strengthened, because we must rely on them. I have the impression, however, that this is sometimes sidelined in certain decision-making spheres, and that, unfortunately, this can be a major obstacle to a successful transition process. Similarly, SRSG Zerugi explained that a peacekeeping mission is never supposed to be a substitute for national and local authorities and the Congolese themselves. For me, it's very, very important. Two things. One, a peacekeeping mission is not deployed in a country to raise a war. A peacekeeping mission is deployed in a country to build peace. And to build peace, you have to strengthen those who ensure that the peace is sustainable. Those are the people of Congo, their institution, their government. That's the first thing that we have to keep in mind. 
The second thing that I think is very important is a peacekeeping mission is not deployed to substitute the local authority, the government, the people of Congo. It's very, very important to clarify that we are not here to do things instead of a government because we will never fix the problem. Our role is to accompany government to help the government to see the problem, to understand the problem, and to address them with our support, but not go home, I will fix the problem, I bring the key. It's not the way that you will empower people. We are not here to disempower people. Transitions expert Daniel Fordy explained in the last episode how difficult it is to determine if a mission was successful. Leila Zirugi linked a mission's success to national ownership and argued that the biggest success of a mission does not happen when it is deployed. It comes when it is able to leave. But the peacekeeping mission that exists today, all of them, without exception, there is no peacekeeping mission that is deployed to substitute a government or disempower a government. We are deployed to empower a government, to build the peace and to leave. And our success is when we leave. Our success is not why we are there, because everyone will have something to complain about. And we have to accept that, because it's very painful. At the same time, when we manage to leave a country in peace, no return to conflict, we will not call back. That's the success of a mission. Even though strengthening national ownership is crucial, that does not mean that the Congolese people do not need international solidarity, Passimou Balama pointed out. We believe that we need this international solidarity, which, for me, remains key to enable us Congolese to get out of this situation. But for the problems of the Congolese, the solution is in the Congo. So the solidarity I'm talking about really needs to support the Congolese people as much as possible. Currently, the situation causes a huge loss of human life. But we must continue to have hope. We have to have hope. And I think we have a very, very strong civil society that is very much committed to peace consolidation in our country. We must count on the civil society by continuing to support it. We asked if this hopeful view is in fact also a realistic view. If so, Passimo Balama says, the international community must be involved while maintaining or restoring national ownership. Well, I don't think it's too realistic, but it's possible. We always say that we must have hope, and by having hope, we fear that we will lack the courage to fight certain evils that are responsible for everything we're experiencing here. But of course, we're not doing it alone. We need the support of the international community. But at the same time, I think that the international community should not take over the work of the Congolese government. We must make our government accountable so that it understands that, as a government, it has an important role to play in consolidating peace in the Congo. And while the Director-General of the DRC's Social Fund, Rufin Bouilongo, agrees that having their own expertise is crucial, he also agrees with Passimou Balama that international partners are needed. I believe that technical support is always necessary. And it is true that we could get more expertise ourselves. 
but at the same time, we can also receive support in terms of expertise from international partners as a holistic concept and with a participatory approach that involves everyone, including international actors. We learned that for the transition, the leadership of the DRC government is crucial, both for taking on tasks that MONUSCO is currently carrying out, as well as for developing a strategy for transition. SRSG Zirugi thinks that, at the moment, the relationship between the mission and the government is developing well. She is hopeful that the national government's ownership, through their collaboration, can bring the country closer to peace. Of course, what is good in this context is that we have a government that is keen to work with us, a president that would like to engage with us. We have the same understanding with regard to how we can stabilize. We are working together and I think we have an opportunity and hopefully that our partners and all those who are working in DRC will help us to achieve a minimum that will turn the page of conflict in this country and that allow this country continent and the 100 million people living in this country to enjoy peace and to enjoy the wealth of their country and to be part of building peace and stability in the whole region and maybe in the whole Africa. So in the same manner as Pasimu Balama, Leila Zirugi expressed some hope that the next few years will entail positive developments in the country, among others through national ownership and despite the enormous challenges that we outlined before. What is clear that, even with a strong national vision and leadership, the DRC government, as well as Congolese civil society, will need continued support by international actors such as UN agencies, the World Bank, the EU and other donors. In the last episode, international actors identified three major challenges for them. Coordination, joint planning and analysis, and avoiding a funding gap. So for the next part, we talk to the experts from the DRC, the UN, the World Bank and the EU about their approaches and tools to address those challenges for a transition of MONUSCO. The first challenge we discussed in depth in episode 1 was coordination among international actors. To understand what the challenges are regarding coordination in the DRC, we asked the experts from the international organizations in this episode about their understanding of their respective roles and tasks. We have already heard in detail what the key tasks of the UN peacekeeping mission are in the country. However, there are also local agencies and a multitude of other international actors engaged in the transition process. Leila Zirugi even sees an increase in the international commitments, which is a sign of hope, according to the head of MONUSCO. I see, for example, the World Bank, I see the Peace Building Fund, I see the European Union, they are engaged in DRC. And I see them even more engaged than ever because they are called by the new leadership and they trust the new leadership and they would like to support the new leadership. So I think it's an opportunity to really use this space that have never been as open as it is today to help the Congolese to turn the page of the instability and the conflict. Before we hear more from the World Bank and the European Union, it is important to note that, in fact, there are many other actors involved in any effort to build peace and, in particular, peacekeeping settings, and the DRC is no exception. 
These other actors include countless national and international NGOs, a whole range of UN agencies, funds and programs, as well as a huge number of bilateral donors. This podcast concentrates on just a few of them. We talked to Paul Bons, who is the Senior Operations Officer in the World Bank's Social Protection and Jobs Africa team. He explains how he sees the World Bank's role as a development actor and in what way the context in DRC is specifically challenging. Transitions are unpredictable, even in non-fragile states. But our job as a development institution is to help the authorities in addressing the deep structural problems that hamper DRC's development. Any political configuration will have to address this painful paradox. DRC is tremendously rich in natural resources, but it faces recurring and polyform crises, social, fiscal, political, environmental, and so on, all of which are made more complex by violence and corruption. Take an example. The last Ebola crisis in DRC. It was one of the most complex emergency operations in the world, as the epidemics came on top of pre-existing humanitarian development and security crises. This is where the collaboration with other multilateral actors is key. No organization can solve such a conundrum alone. We must build on the mandate and expertise of each other to succeed. Paul Bans also explained the unique possibilities arising from the World Bank's engagement in transition processes. The World Bank's comparative advantage comes from its financial power and its long-term engagement with countries. The significance of the former is clear to all. Aid orphans don't succeed and needs to protect the population and rebuild the country in a post-conflict settings are huge. But we should insist on the later long-term engagement. Transitions require reforms and reforms take time, a lot of time. The World Bank is not constrained by the short funding cycle of humanitarian programs or the electoral cycles of bilateral actors. The World Bank can engage a long-term dialogue with the government on structural reform, those that will make peace sustainable. On the contrary, speed, access, security, field presence, to name but a few, are not the World Bank comparative advantages. This is why the newly released World Bank Strategy for Fragility, Conflict and Violence insists on leveraging the humanitarian development peace nexus. When it comes to getting everyone on the same page to coordinate activities, Paul Bans argued two questions have to be answered. What to coordinate and how to coordinate. There is the what and then there is the how. The peacekeeping mission in DRC, MONUSCO, has a stabilization mandate meaning it has to maintain peace between various armed groups and self-defense militias, while also building the capacity of the security sector and protecting civilians. This is difficult, partly because no comprehensive peace agreement exists, and partly because conditions on the ground, such as poverty and exclusion, create a fertile ground for using violence to secure livelihood. So in a way, the roots of the conflict are also developmental, One challenge will therefore be to reach some political agreement, which is beyond what the World Bank can help with. But where we can help is to ensure inclusive development for all and hence build the longer term conditions to sustain peace. This is a what. The how can start by making sure all international actors 
have a shared understanding of the operating environment. For example, some UN agencies and humanitarian actors have much higher thresholds for security risks than we do. We must go the extra mile and explain to our UN partners those realities. The European Union follows its own approach. Jean-Marc Chatenier explained that the EU has put in place the so-called 4D approach. Those four Ds stand for diplomacy, defense, development, and rights, in French, droit. The first D for diplomacy. We need a lot of diplomacy in DRC to build a strong commitment from the country of the region, from the international community, to continue to support the peace process in DRC. I think about the involvement of the countries of the region. We have to invite them to stop their support to armed groups operating in the DRC, to better control illicit trafficking between DRC and their territories. The second D, of course, is the D of defense, defense and security. We need to strengthen DRC capacities to ensure its own security and not to depend on the external support, of course, of MOLUSCO, which will leave. We need to focus much more right now on the training, the equipment, the human rights monitoring of the Force Armée de la République démocratique du Congo, the Armed Forces of DRC, the FARDC. In this effort of training, equipment, human rights monitoring, we must not forget the civilian component of the security forces, the role of the police. And the EU is doing a lot on the police to strengthen the capacities. Uh, the short D is the D for development. The overall objective of the EU, the transition process, the different transition processes that I mentioned before, uh, is to reestablish political order, democratic governance, strong institutions, physical infrastructure, and productive capacity in order to create a base for sustainable development, for human development, to provide, of course, education, to provide health for people. And the fourth D is the D for droit, the rights in English, rights of the people. Human rights, of course, but also the need to take into account the needs of the most vulnerable and thinking about the women, the children. In ensuring women's meaningful participation in all matters related to peace and security is one very critical key of any success that we want to achieve right now in the RC. So we now know about the tasks, perceived roles and comparative advantages, as well as approaches of MONUSCO, the World Bank and the EU in the DRC. And we can also see that there are overlaps that could be addressed through coordination and partnership among the international actors as the World Bank and the EU agree on. Moreover, EU Ambassador Jean-Marc Chatenier highlighted the importance of coordination between international and national actors and why the need for flexibility requires donors to coordinate even more closely. Uh, the challenge uh, is a challenge of coordination between, of course, international actors, but also between international and national actors. We must work on the same agenda. Uh, we must be sure that we are understanding the same things, that we are speaking the same language, and uh, we must be sure that we have the same objectives. And uh, we know that it's not always very easy to share information on strategies between actors. But I really think this is an absolute prerequisite for success. Despite agreement among international actors regarding its importance, effective coordination remains challenging in practice. 
Pasimubalama criticized a lack of coordination, especially when it comes to including civil society. I think that at the moment, cooperation between institutions and the DRC is too weak. Many people and many institutions work separately. As a civil society, every day we stand by the people. But there is this lack of coordination between the different actors, the government, political actors in general, international organizations and civil society. And when I talk about civil society, I don't just see civil society at the international level, but above all at the local level. We all have a role to play, but there is this lack of coherence in the actions, which means that, unfortunately, things don't work very well. On the one hand, the UN, the World Bank and the EU pursue complementary strategies in the DRC in regard to a possible future transition. On the other hand, as we heard here, it will remain challenging to ensure continued coordination and coherence amongst such organizations. Bearing in mind the fact that these are only three organizations amongst hundreds of other actors, including NGOs, other international organizations and bilateral donors, indicates just how complex such coordination efforts will remain. Closely related to this coordination challenge is the question, who is planning, with whom and what kind of joint planning and common analysis is taking place for a transition? As we heard in episode 1, different international organizations use a range of planning tools. For general planning, the UN, in cooperation with the national government, uses its own UN Sustainable Development Cooperation Framework, the UNSDCF, that we already heard about in the first part. As a reminder, it is a key tool for planning and analysis that the UN is using in cooperation with national governments. This framework is embedded in the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and aims at supporting the host country's vision by UN actions. In the DRC, the next UN SDCF will cover the period for 2020 to 2024. In terms of specific planning for a transition, as we heard earlier, the UN mission and the government of the DRC will prepare a common transition strategy until October 2020. MONUSCO and the government held regular meetings up until the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. What other tools are in use? Looking at other international actors, the World Bank has its own multi-annual framework on partnership, as Paul Bans explains. Our work is guided by a country partnership framework that we renew every five years. The current framework, which is ending this year, focuses on three main areas. Human capital including health, social protection and education, sustainable development with topics like infrastructure, energy, agriculture, and governance and the private sector development. Our portfolio of investment includes 24 projects valued at a total of 3.9 billion US dollars. And what we've learned from the Ebola work is that it is possible to bring two different but complementary organizational cultures and systems together in pursuit of a greater good. So we are engaging in a dialogue with the government on potential access to the prevention and resilience allocation, a new financing window from the World Bank. And as we're doing so in close collaboration with MONUSCO to support its transition strategy, 
we're making sure that benchmark will be developed with the government to be presented to the Security Council next October. While the World Bank has its own separate planning process with the government of the DRC, the bank is also working to ensure synergies with the transition strategy that MONUSCO and the government will present to the Security Council later this year. In terms of international donor coordination, the formulation of joint strategies is only recently beginning in the DRC, as EU Ambassador Jean-Marc Chetinier explained. Uh, in DRC, in fact, we are just at uh, the beginning of this process. And I have just established several weeks ago uh, some contacts with the UN and uh, with the World Bank colleagues to see what we can do together. And this withdrawal will take several years, uh, at least I think two or three years. So we must seize this opportunity to develop joint conflict analysis from the ground, assess needs and make plans for recovery to, together. And we have a, a request from the national authorities for us to begin to work on a kind of uh, national conference to support this process. And for me, uh, in this context, uh, the, the master word that uh, must guide our action is to share. We must share the information that we have, and it's uh, not always very easy. We must share the same understanding of the context. We must share the same approach towards uh, peace building. And it's very important to ensure complementarity of actions with a view really to establish also a strategic dialogue with the government, with the authorities. The international community has to work together, the EU, the World Bank, the United Nations. But we must not forget when we work together to discuss and to dialogue with the government and with the authorities and to take on board their views. And this is this process that is going on. And in this context, also, I, I would like to underline the importance of the UN Peace Building Commission. That will be also uh, an important framework uh, to plan and coordinate the transition process in the RC. Thinking back to what the different experts recommended in the first episode, in terms of joint strategies and common analysis, we can see that, as of now, there is no plan to conduct a recovery and peacebuilding assessment. The RPBA is an analysis tool by the UN, the EU and the World Bank, which they use for joint assessments. We discussed this in greater detail in episode 1 as one possible planning tool for transition processes. Ruthan Builongo, the general director of the DRC's social fund, shares the impression that actors are not on the same page. He advocates for real, transparent and frank dialogue between the different national and international actors involved in peace building and development in the DRC. I would like the UN, through MONUSCO, and the government to have a frank dialogue, because we cannot understand a body like MONUSCO that came to the country with a specific mission, but more than 20 years later, successive governments have failed to bring peace. We are used to a lot of meetings, roundtable discussions, and so on. But I think we need one single dialogue that can enable the main players, particularly MONUSCO and the government, to identify the real causes of conflict and put together the mechanisms to silence the weapons in the east of the country. But as far as I know, there has never been a global program that brings together all the stakeholders in a way that actions are carried out and coordinated for essential results. According to Rufin Bouelango, such a dialogue should aim at identifying the root causes of the conflict, which should form the basis of the joint approach. 
The development experts also offers concrete ideas for a coherent program in the east of the DRC with all actors involved, which includes both stabilization and peace consolidation. I am trying to come up with a common agenda, including actions in several sectors that could in any case allow us to work in synergy to achieve results. To achieve this, Rufin Boilango called for more resources and underlined the importance of national ownership and of ensuring a real inclusive approach, including, for example, local authorities in neighbor countries. Once such plan would be agreed upon, every actor should concentrate on their specific comparative advantage, he said. La plupart des fois, ce qui manque, c'est d'abord le ressource. What's missing most of the time is firstly, resources. Secondly, the effective involvement of the various actors to resolve the issue of instability in the east of the country. The programs that we have today, for example with the World Bank, contribute to the stabilization of the east. But coordination remains difficult because if you want to work on stabilization, first of all, you have to identify the root causes of that instability. And you can only do that in one coherent program. Once this program is developed, The different actors can each take a component and put resources in place, depending on the area. But without coordination at a given level, with results that everyone agreed upon, I don't think we'll finally be able to silence the guns in the East. Irrespective of the kind of joint plans are agreed upon or who will be participating in the planning, One other thing is important on planning for the transition, EU Ambassador Jean-Marc Chatigny stressed. There is a great need for constant flexibility. I would like to clarify that for me the RC is a very big country, a continent country, with quite different regional and local situations. And the dynamics of conflicts, the situations in Kasai, in Tanganyika, in South Kivu, in North Kivu, in Ituri, are not the same. We have different political and economic actors, uh, different international actors, but also different local actors, different causes, different routes, different regional involvements from the countries of the region. So I would not speak about one transition process in the RC, one exit strategy for MONUSCO, but I would rather prefer stress the idea that we have to face several transition processes with their own specificities that we have to take into account. For me, it's very important to underline this concept of a plurality of transitions in the RC, because in fact, we have to address a series of very local situations, a very different local situation. We cannot think our toolkit of peace and security development governance instruments in a linear way. This is not a question of chronological order between peacekeeping and peace building, but rather a question of simultaneous integrated approach that we must promote at each step, the spirit of this approach everywhere. The human security must be at the center of these transition processes. Fragile situations evolve in a very nonlinear manner. We must promote a pragmatic and flexible approach to answer to this uh, changing context. SRSG Zirugi also emphasized the need for flexibility and added that MONUSCO should concentrate on regions where they are most needed and to reduce their footprint step by step. This requires flexible planning and close coordination 
with the local authorities. Ourselves as a mission, and we put it very clearly in our strategy for the budget 2021, is to explain what we would like to achieve in this transition with regard to, uh, because you have to reduce the footprint. That's a transition. You cannot just be everywhere doing the same things and one day say goodbye, I'm leaving. It's really to show to the donor, to the one who are paying for our budget, that we are serious about transition. If we are not anymore needed in an area, we have to focus on where we are needed. So it's very important to push Kinshasa, to push the local authority, to really put in place the framework that will allow for other partners at bilateral level, multilateral level, agencies, NGOs, to then fit in the vision that was endorsed at the national level that is put in place at the local level and working. So for me, that's what the strategy of transition means, is we will not close and leave just between day and night. It's to help the system to continue to work in area that we are not the best to do, but other can do it without us. And we have to focus on other area where we are the only one that can deliver on it. Next to joint planning and the need for flexibility, Pasimu Balama emphasized the need to not only include civil society in every planning process, but to also have a good understanding of who the relevant civil society actors are in a specific context. According to Pasimu Balama, only when all voices are heard and their point of view is considered, one can speak of successful sustainable development. As civil society, we stand by the people every day. We stand by the people who are specifically affected by conflicts, but also the whole population in general, be it women, the young or the elderly. We know their problems very well and we think that our role as civil society is to help them. We are the voice of the people that we represent. And unfortunately, we have found that during the various planning stages of this transition, very few Congolese civil society organizations are in fact consulted. Sometimes there are consultations that take place at the international level. But at the national level, consultations are limited to Kinshasa, where there are just a few organizations, but which are not at all aware of the actual realities of the people in the different provinces. And unfortunately, there is lack of coordination to ensure that the voice of civil society at the most local level and those who are the most marginalized are heard and taken into account. I think that it is only when these voices are heard that we can say that we're ready for a transition, that this can lead to peace building and lasting peace in the Congo. Otherwise, everything we do will not lead to sustainable development. Uh, To summarize, while this podcast only considers some of many ongoing planning developments for a transition of MONUSCO, we learned that, in general, the key planning tool for the UN and the government of the DRC is the UNSDCF, a framework which can also guide funding decisions by other donors. In addition, MONUSCO and the government have been engaging in a dialogue on a transition strategy that is supposed to be presented to the UN Security Council in October 2020, though COVID-19 might hamper this dialogue. The World Bank has a four-year multi-annual framework in place until 2024. 
The bank will also advocate for certain benchmarks it deems important to be included in the transition strategy presented to the UN Security Council. In terms of getting international donors on the same page on transition planning, the EU ambassador highlighted that such planning is only just beginning. There's currently also no plan to conduct a Recovery and Peacebuilding Assessment, an RPBA, as was suggested by international experts in the first episode. We also heard that from the point of view of Congolese development expert Rufan Bouilongo, there is a lack of common planning and having everyone on the same page for transition. In summary, a lot of work remains to be done. A third challenge of previous transition processes is the risk of a lack of resources and funding gaps. How does this play out in the DRC? A guiding question for planning a successful transition is, will there be sufficient financial resources during the transition and, most importantly, after the UN peacekeeping mission has drawn down? As we heard from transitions expert Daniel Forti in episode 1, there is always a danger of funding gaps. Leila Zirugi pointed out an important aspect to consider. What's the mindset of member states, the donors? Are they still engaged to continue to support a mission that is here for 20 years? There is a fatigue, uh, for sure. Rufan Boilongo acknowledged that, next to technical assistance, the DRC government will need substantial financial resources from donors in the coming years. International actors still play an important role. They do not only contribute technical support, but also, and above all, resources. The government budget is too low to be able to meet all the needs, including addressing the question of stability in the east of the country. The government relies mainly on the contributions of external financial partners, but this funding is not enough, and I believe that it is not sufficiently coordinated to achieve the results that we expected. EU Ambassador Jean-Marc Chatigny highlighted that the DRC does not receive significant amounts of development funding in the first place compared to other countries in the region. I think one of the particular issues of DRC is that DRC is a, an aid or fund. So what are some financial instruments that important donors can offer in the DRC? An important tool by the UN that was already highlighted in the first episode is the UN Secretary General's Peacebuilding Fund, the PBF. It is a financial instrument which aims, among others, at cushioning a financial cliff after a peacekeeping mission draws down. The PBF offers both short-term support, for which all countries are eligible, and medium-term support, for which the government must apply, supported by a conflict analysis by the UN. This should ideally be linked to UN planning documents developed in agreement with the national government, for example, the United Nations Sustainability Development Cooperation Framework. Rosalind Akombe from the UN Transitions Projects and other experts we spoke to in the last episode highlighted the crucial role of the Peacebuilding Fund. The DRC, in fact, already successfully applied for eligibility of the medium-term support from 2019 to 2024. Other international actors also acknowledge the importance of the PBF. EU Ambassador Jean-Marc Chatenier explained which role it could play in the DRC. I think that the UN Peacebuilding Fund is also one of the tools 
already available to provide uh, coordinated financing for transition process like uh, the DRC. It can help in particular if we want to focus on some important issues, cross-border projects, women and youth empowerment programs, contributions to the prevention of conflicts. It could ease the transition financing cliff and catalyze additional resources. That means that we need to create more incentives for partners to contribute to the UN Peacebuilding Fund, and we have to have more donors involved in, in this process. The EU's budget for the DRC is based on the European Development Fund, the EDF. The current period from 2014 to 2020 comprised a budget of 672 million euros. The ambassador explained the four pillars of action of the EDF and how the EU is applying them in the DRC. This development aid is supplemented by humanitarian aid for emergency situations, in particular, of course, in the eastern part of the country with the Ebola outbreaks, uh, with the problems of refugees and displaced persons, uh, with the food crisis situation, and uh, right now, of course, with the situation of covid We have 11 EDF, four pillars of action. Uh, the first one, democratic governance, human rights and rule of law and public finance transparency. Uh, the second one, health. The third one, environment, sustainable agriculture and food and nutrition security. And the last one, infrastructures. And in fact, we are at the end of this financial cycle. It was the cycle uh, 2014-2020. A new financing instrument and a new funding envelope will be adopted at the end of this year for the period 2021-2027. And as the, this new budget has not been uh, yet adopted by our member states, uh, I can only give you a personal opinion, a personal view on the possible support of the EU during the coming transition period. And in fact, in my view, we need to develop a new rapid response pillar, which could be an essential tool in the transition context. Uh, between the humanitarian and the development instruments, we need to upgrade our stabilization response. We have to transform our current tools to make them more flexible and adaptive, to be able to adjust our methods and our programs to changing contexts. We have, in fact, to be more agile. Also in the context of financing, Jean-Marc Chatigny highlighted the importance of both flexibility of the instruments, especially in fragile situations like in the DRC, and information sharing, for example, on the timing of allocation. This all requires close coordination among donors to avoid financing gaps. To avoid this, we need to mobilize, to have more predictable donors, and uh, we have to work better collectively and to, to share the information. Uh, so it would be very important, in particular between the World Bank uh, and the EU, and of course the UN, to really discuss the different funding envelopes that we have, and to really be very concrete and precise on the timing of allocation of this envelope. It's essential to plan the funding request. So for this kind of very fragile situations, or situations of volatility, Uh, we have to draw more attention from the international community and we must use, of course, the UN Peacebuilding Fund and we must work together, the UN, the World Bank, the EU, to really um, draw the attention of the world on the situation on the RC.
Planning ahead, as we heard time and time again from all experts, is crucial to ensure a successful transition. The requirements for the planning of funding cycles naturally also influence the strategic orientation of international actors. For example, the World Bank's recently launched strategy on fragility, conflict and violence paves the way for the World Bank's future focus. Paul Bons explained what the World Bank's funding decisions are based on in the DRC. I've mentioned earlier the main pillars of our work, human capital, sustainable development and governance and private sector. We aim to work where poverty hurts the most. We will conduct activities in nine out of 26 provinces, which account for about 20% of the territory, but are home to 50% of the country's poorest residents. This geographic selection is based on a data analysis of poverty concentration, economic corridors, accessibility, and fragility, of course. We opened a liaison office in Goma, in North Kivu, and another in Kananga, in Kasai Central. This will enhance our field presence and help us coordinate better with our international partners and local authorities. The World Bank is currently developing the next five-year framework with a proposed focus on first, service delivery for increased human capital, and second, economic management for sustainable and inclusive private sector-led growth, and as a cross-cutting theme, governance and corruption. This framework includes strategic decisions about what topics will be specifically highlighted and also the amount of funding available for the DRC in the next years, as Paul Bons outlined. All investments of the World Bank in the coming years will include a filter on drivers of fragility. One of the intervention areas for this period will be support for economic management. This includes strengthening of the mobilization of national resources, the strengthening of governance through citizen engagement, accountability and transparency, the development of the private sector for job creation and growth, infrastructure, of course, and the development of sustainable agriculture resilient to climate change. It is essential for DRC to reform state-owned enterprises and overall improve public governance. Among others, this will bring in new revenues, which has the potential to rebalance the fiscal space. The DRC has also a set of instruments currently available through the World Bank. As of this year, the World Bank has committed an allocation of nearly $2.5 billion in the social sector, education, health and social protection focusing on strengthening human development. During the next allocation period, 2021-2024, DRC will have access to $2 billion plus a possible additional allocation of up to $700 million for prevention and resilience. Listening to Paul Bons and the other experts and to sum up this part about financing, we heard that there are funding instruments available. Not least that the DRC is now eligible for medium-term funding through the Peacebuilding Fund provides a promising opportunity for financial planning. The EU will have funding available through the EDF, and the World Bank says that during the next allocation period of 2021 to 2024, the DRC will have access to 2 billion US dollars, as well as to a possible additional allocation of up to 700 million US dollars for prevention and resilience. 
We also heard, though, that the risk for a funding gap during and after a transition in the DRC is high, given that in comparison to other developing countries, development funding to the country is relatively low. There is a risk that donors, in particular after the global economic downturn related to COVID-19, will lose interest in the country if the mission draws down, which would be exactly the moment when funding is most needed. While there is no coordinated strategy yet on who will be funding which elements during and after the transition, there is a potential to avoid a funding gap if joint planning and coordination will take place at an early stage. This brings us to the end of the second part of the Peace Lab podcast on transitions from peacekeeping to peacebuilding. While we talked about lessons on transitions more generally in the first episode, the discussion of a transition of MONUSCO has highlighted two points. First, the case shows how relevant these lessons learned we heard about in part one are. The need for flexibility according to the political context and changing circumstances, the need for national ownership of the process, coordination between key actors and joint planning, including on financing. Second, what we heard also underlined how difficult it is to actually implement these lessons in practice. After 20 years, there is pressure for MONUSCO to draw down and to develop a clear strategy for transition. Yet, we heard about the challenges that will have to be addressed for the transition to be successful. Many of the experts we spoke to do not believe that at this point the conditions exist for the mission to draw down without significant risks to the security of many Congolese people, as well as to development and peacebuilding efforts in the country. Despite the myriad of challenges and the fact that the security and humanitarian situation is currently deteriorating, there is hope for peace, said Ruffin Bouilongo, if real cooperation is achieved. I believe in the fact that if we come together in a transparent manner around a program that will start by identifying the real causes, and if we put the means in place to eradicate the armed groups in the east of the country, I think there is ground for hope. And therefore, we need the international community to support us. Today, I think there is still the political will, although there are still concerns. We have hope. Not having hope would be fatalistic. It will be vital for international actors, including the United Nations, the World Bank and the European Union, to coordinate closely, to not only share information, but plan together, to remain flexible, make use of each other's comparative advantages, and to ensure adequate financing of the transition process in the future. Some of these efforts are only just starting. It remains to be seen how the situation evolves in the country and what the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic will mean for peace and stability in the DRC, as well as the future of MONUSCO. This episode of the Peace Lab podcast, Transitions from Peacekeeping to Peacebuilding, was produced by me, Marie Wagner, and Sarah Brockmeier from the Global Public Policy Institute, GPPI, in Berlin, in cooperation with the German Federal Foreign Office, as contribution to the World Bank's Virtual Fragility Forum 2020. Sarah Brockmeier and Evan Yoshimoto lent their voices for the English translation of the interviews with Passimo Balama and Rufin Boilongo. Caroline Tungel assisted with the translation, Sophie Stoffel with research. Mathis Römer mixed and edited the audio. We are always looking for feedback, so please write us at peacelab at gppi.net or leave us a comment on Twitter at, at peacelabblog. 
This podcast got you interested in PeaceLab? Check out the PeaceLab blog with contributions on German and European policy responses on conflict prevention, stabilization and peacebuilding. You can find it under www.peacelab.blog. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day and take care.